Suspense. That's how the radio and later television show began its broadcast, promising by its very title that you would get some suspense. Similarly, we offer you escape. Offered you escape. Presented Tales of Tomorrow. Thriller promised thrills, and science fiction theater promised science fiction. Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma, and the reason I bring all this up is that I have read some criticism of this episode, The Legacy, saying that it is not suspenseful. It is, in fact, in spite of some twists and turns, generally a drama. And since Alfred Hitchcock was known as the master of suspense, there is a certain expectation that the program will bring suspense. But the only thing that Alfred Hitchcock Presents promises in its title is that Alfred Hitchcock will present. In fact, here he is now, trapped like a fly in a giant web. Good evening, and thank you for allowing me to come into your parlor. It all happened so suddenly I was walking along when I heard someone saying, knit one, pearl one. And I came over to see what she was doing. The really frightening part is that I forgot my hunting license. Oh well, the show must go on, even though I may not. Tonight's entertainment is entitled The Legacy. Through it, you will journey to Palm Beach and rub elbows with the idle rich and members of the international set. But before we join these useless playboys of a decaying society, let us heed the advice of a man who is earnest, productive and steadfast, a pillar of our civilization, and the sugar daddy of television, the sponsor. So here's the Legacy. First broadcast on May 27, 1956, starring Leora Dana and Jacques Bergerac. Teleplay by Gina Kaus and Andrew Solt, based on a story by Gina Kaus, and directed by James Nielsen. We have heard three of these names before. This is James Nielsen's third directing job after Help Wanted and The Orderly World of Mr. Appleby. He has 12 episodes total, and his next is Crack of Doom, episode 9 of season 2. I don't know what Andrew Solt contributed to the teleplay, seeing as Gina Kaus is both co-teleplay writer and the writer of the short story. But this is his second of three credits. His first was episode 21, Safe Conduct, and his next is The Return of the Hero, episode 22 of season three. Those are, in fact, the only credits for Jacques Bergerac as an actor as well. So he appears in all three episodes in which Andrew Solt had a hand in the teleplay. This seems to me to be more than a coincidence, although it's unlikely that Andrew Solt was involved in the casting. We haven't even started this episode, and already our viewpoint has been influenced by Hitchcock, who has referred to our players as useless playboys of a decaying society. 
But our narrator, yes, we have a narrator, for the first time since, I think, episode 24, The Perfect Murder, is not part of the idle rich. He is, in fact, a writer of, it appears, biographies of the rich and famous. And he has come to Palm Beach to meet the man that he has chosen as his next subject. Not that he isn't perfectly comfortable with the members of the international set. Palm Beach, where the sun spends the winter and people spend fortunes to be in it, and in the society columns. While walking out to the terrace of my hotel, I was wondering which of the old regulars I would run into first, Cecilia Smithson or Colonel Blair. I wasn't far from wrong. I bumped into both of them at the same time. Cecilia and the Colonel are playing cards with each other, and while it's a casual occupation, they are not dressed casually. Cecilia is wearing a dress with a large brooch on the left shoulder and some sort of floral arrangement on the right shoulder. She's wearing a pearl necklace, a large pearl bracelet, and two large earrings that look like bunches of grapes. The colonel has a black sports jacket on over a white shirt. He has a handkerchief sticking out of the jacket pocket, and he's wearing an ascot. But they are not the only two people at that table. I'm sorry. This is Mr. Randolph Burnside, the famous English author, Irene Cole. How do you do? How do you do, Mr. Burnside? I warn you, Irene, he's a very dangerous person. He pretends he comes to Florida for the sunshine, but actually he's gathering material for his next book. Well, I'm sure I'm safe. Mr. Burnside only writes sophisticated stories about fascinating people. Well, I'm certain you're all safe this season because I've already chosen the subject for my next book. He is the most fascinating playboy, lover, sportsman. And does he look like a film star? Is he worth a million? Does he have a title? Is he going to drive in the Sebring sports car races? And uh, is he due to arrive tonight? I have been following him from Bombay to Biarritz, and let me tell you, he is even more fabulous than his reputation. We're getting a lot of information thrown at us, but let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. First, we learn our narrator's name, Randolph Burnside known as Randy, to his friends. Then we meet Irene Cole. She is dressed very plainly, no necklace, very modest earrings, and she's knitting as she sits at the table. Now, our first introductions to Cecilia and the Colonel present them as charming but frivolous. When Cecilia greets Randy, she says, I had my face lifted. It's still painful when I smile, but you know skin stretches like rubber. And Randy's first exchange with the colonel includes... Do you have your boat with you, colonel? No, no, just my arthritis and a dick of cards. <laughs> Irene, on the other hand, seems much more down-to-earth. For one thing, after Randy describes his handsome, mysterious, wealthy subject for his latest biography, Irene doesn't know who he's talking about. Who is this wonderful person? Now, Irene, really, nobody can be this ignorant. Could it be but Prince Baron? Baron? He's that prince from India, isn't he? The one who was deposed in the riots two years ago? Yes, that's right. So now we've also been introduced to Prince Baron. We've learned that he was a prince of India who was deposed a couple of years ago, that he's wealthy, handsome, and a race car driver due to drive in the Sebring sports car races. By the time we get to the end of this episode, we'll discover that not all of that is true. And while it's never mentioned again, perhaps we'll get a sense of just why he was deposed. 
Now, when Randy is introduced to Irene, he sits down next to her. And in that ensuing conversation, the camera switches back and forth between two shots of Randy and Irene and of Cecilia and the Colonel. So although Randy doesn't know it yet, the camera has told us that he is allied with Irene. When the maitre d' comes up and offers to create a salad dressing for Cecilia's salad, she asks Irene to do it, and Irene is happy to do it. Once Irene leaves, Randy joins Cecilia and the colonel on their side of the table, and he wonders who Irene is. He may not be technically part of the idle rich, but he certainly shares a bit of their snobbery. Irene makes the most delicious dressing. Is she your new secretary? Oh, Randy, don't be silly. She is Mrs. Howard Cole. You mean the Texas oil, Howard Cole? Mm Mm-hmm. Isn't it unbelievable? It is at this point that Howard Cole, dressed for tennis, comes off the court with his doubles partner, Donna Dew. One of, as Cecilia puts it, One of the bright new stars of Hollywood. But not so fast. We're starting to get characters piling up here. Let's take a look at a few of them. Randy, our narrator, is played by Ralph Clanton. This is his second of seven Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearances. We saw him last as Sir Stephen Hurstwood in episode 31, The Gentleman from America. He next appears in Malice Domestic, episode 20 of season 2. We've also seen the man who played Colonel Blair before. He's Walter Kingsford, and this is his second of five appearances. He was Aunt Rosalie's doctor in episode 24, The Perfect Murder, and we'll see him next in Jonathan, episode 10 of season two. The maitre d' is Rudolph Anders. We will get to him a little bit later. Cecilia was played by Enid Markey, and Enid was a silent film star in the very early days of movies. Her first film was The Fortunes of War in 1911. In 1914, she appeared in The Wrath of the Gods and in a scene in which a volcano's lava flow destroys the village. She ended up surrounded by smoke and nearly asphyxiated. In 1915, she was in The Darkening Trail, one of a number of films she made with Western star William S. Hart in which she was his leading lady riding bareback and twirling six-shooters. She fought crocodiles and panthers in Aloha A, in which she wore the first Hollywood sarong. And in 1918, she originated the role of Jane in the Tarzan films, playing the character twice, first in Tarzan of the Apes and then in the romance of Tarzan. But in 1920, she left the films saying, I was tired of making faces. I wanted to learn how to act. And she went to New York. According to her obituary in the New York Times, she wrote to a prominent producer of the day, A.H. Woods, I'm here. I have talent. Will you hire me? If you do, you'll never regret it. When she went to Woods' 42nd Street office, she found him feet on his desk, wearing a large jade ring and an imported silk shirt and smoking an expensive cigar. He said, sit down, sweetheart. And then she recalled, He signed me for the part of the crybaby bride in Up in Mabel's Room. She played in the hit farce for a year in New York and eight months in Chicago. After that, she said, I was never idle. In fact, she was so busy on the stage that she didn't return to films until 1945 and then stepped into television roles at the beginning of the 1950s. During that decade, she was in dramas, such as the Suspicion episode, The Sparkle of Diamonds, 
But beginning in 1960, she turned more to situation comedies. She had a regular role in the CBS comedy Bringing Up Buddy, which only lasted one year from 1960 to 1961. And she appeared as Grandma Pyle in Gomer Pyle USMC and as Mrs. Mendelbright, Barney Fife's landlady, in the Andy Griffith show. Where is it? Where's what? Hot plate. Chili and crackers. Where are they? Uh, well, uh... Well, they're not in there. Oh, so you admit they exist. Now, I didn't say that. Oh, good heavens. My mother's dresser. This dresser came by bus all the way from Fort Lauderdale. Oh, Mr. Fife, how could you? Well, so I cooked a little. Is that so terrible? Oh, it's not only your cooking, Mr. Fife. This is a 75-watt bulb, and the rule is no bulbs over 40 watts, and you keep it on all night. Well, I'm studying, if you must know. I've seen you sleeping with it on. Snoop! Snoop! You're afraid of the dark. Bulb snatcher! Oh, Mr. Fife, I shall have to ask you to leave my house. There is someone who's a real gentleman who can use this room, so kindly leave my house. Her last role was again on the serious side in the 1968 film The Boston Strangler. This is her only episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and Enid Markey died in 1981 at the age of 87. Irene Cole is played by our lead, Leora Dana. She, like Enid Markey, had experience on the stage. This is her bio from her last Broadway appearance in Morning Pictures, 1981. Leora Dana made her Broadway debut as Irma in The Mad Woman of Shio, for which she won the Derwent Award as most promising female performer. She subsequently appeared on Broadway in The Happy Time, Point of No Return, Sabrina Fair, and The Best Man. Miss Dana's many film credits include 310 to Yuma. It's a mighty good stew, ma'am. Thank you. Why didn't you say Grace? Because he's bad? I simply forgot it, dear. Aren't you supposed to say Grace with bad people? Grace is for everybody, dear. Well, then why don't you say it? Dear Lord, we thank thee for life. We thank thee for food. We ask thee to give us the wisdom that comes with silence. Amen. Kings go forth. Some came running. The Boston Strangler, like Enid Markey. The group and Tora, Tora, Tora. Not mentioned in there is her role in the Elvis Presley film Change of Habit, along with Mary Tyler Moore. Sometimes making a decision can be terribly painful. I should have come to you sooner, Mother Joseph. Well, you need time to explore your own feelings. You've got to choose the kind of love you want, physical love, or the love you can find only through prayer. From my own experience, I can tell you that nothing is more painful than no decision. I'm finding that out. At the American Place Theater, she was seen in This Bird of Dawning, and at the Lincoln Center's Forum in The Increased Difficulty of Concentration. She also appeared off-Broadway, notably in Collision Course, the Thornton Wilder plays, and in The Summer House. She has been featured in all of the major television shows, a graduate of the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, Miss Dana appeared in the Chiltern Hundreds in London and at the Dublin Theatre Festival in In the Summer House. Most recently, Miss Dana appeared on Broadway in The Women 
and was awarded a Tony for her performance as Elizabeth Edwards in The Last of Mrs. Lincoln. She also was nominated for a Tony back in 1960 in The Best Man. From 1950 to 1958, she was married to actor Kurt Kasnar. Kasnar was Pazzo in the original Broadway production of Waiting for Godot, and he was Nero Wolfe to William Shatner's Archie Goodwin in the 1959 Nero Wolfe TV series. But I remember him as the bad guy among the crew in The Land of the Giants. This is from her obituary in the New York Times. She played Mary Tyrone in Eugene O'Neill's Long Day's Journey into Night for the Arena Stage in Washington and appeared in productions at the Public Theater, the Manhattan Theater Club, and Playwrights Horizons in New York City. Miss Dana performed in the first production at the American Shakespeare Festival in Stratford, Connecticut. More recently, she created the role of Sylvie in the series Another World and appeared as the older Abigail Adams in The Adams Chronicles. She appeared in the Suspicion episode, The Eye of Truth, and she's in two more episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Her next is John Brown's Body, episode 14 of season two. And Leora Dana died in 1983 at the age of 60. Back to our episode with the arrival of Howard Cole and Donna Dew, Howard in his tennis outfit, Donna with blonde hair, well made up, and wearing an outfit that exposes her midriff. She, when introduced to Randy, makes no bones about her ambition. Oh, Mr. Burnside, I'd give my right arm if you'd write me a script. A film about a girl with one arm sounds like a box office natural. <laughs> Donna, you're on vacation. How did you make out, dear? With Donna on my side, how could we lose? This girl can do anything for my money. I think you ought to shower and change. No time for that now. We're going fishing. Hey, you ready? I don't know. The sun's getting awfully strong, and I promised my studio I wouldn't get a suntan. Oh, Mr. Burnside, I... Mmm, Irene, it's poetry, sheer poetry. Uh, thank you, Cecilia. But it's such a perfect day for sailing. I have a wonderful new cream that'll protect your skin. Well, all right. Oh, and I'll bring your vitamin pills, too, dear. Irene goes off to their room. Howard and Donna go off fishing, leaving our threesome to gossip about it. Have you ever seen anything more disgusting? You mean the way the husband carries on? No, the way Irene tolerates it. Such angelic patience that gives me indigestion. I must say it's a bit nauseating. What else could the poor woman do? After all, she knows she's a mousy little thing. She was lucky to have married all that money, and she'll hang on to it. And for the second time, our perceptive writer, our narrator, upon whom we rely, for we hope accurate information, is wrong. First he thought Irene was Cecilia's secretary. Now he thinks she's hanging on to Howard for his money. Cecilia sets him straight. Marry all that money? Really, Randy, what's happened to your infallible nose? Why, Irene is ten times richer than Howard. She's even richer than me. She is Ruggles' bottle cap empire. Every time anyone in America opens a bottle, Irene makes money. Why does she put up with all this? Because, dreary as it sounds, she's in love with him. Now, before we dissolve into the evening, let's take a look at the actors playing Howard Cole and Donna Dew. Howard is Alan Hewitt. He was born in New York City and entered Dartmouth College when he was 15. Alan made his professional debut in 1935 in the Theater Guild production of The Taming of the Shrew with Alfred Lunt and Lynn Fontaine. 
and he stayed with the Guild for seven additional plays, touring with the Lunts in The Seagull and Idiot's Delight. He is seen a lot in 50s and 60s television. He's in the Inner Sanctum episode, The Fatal Hour. He's in four Perry Mason episodes, and spoilers, he's the killer in three of them. You can see him in Gomer Pyle, I Dream of Jeannie, Love American Style, The Lucy Show, I'm Dickens, He's Fenster, F Troop, Bewitched, and, in perhaps his most recognizable role, as Lieutenant Brennan in My Favorite Martian. When a child is abandoned, it becomes a ward of the city. As an officer of the law, I'll see to it that he's turned over to the juvenile authorities at City Hospital. I'll take him now, if you don't mind. Uh, you? Uh, well, now, hold, hold, just one second here. I found them, and it's finders keepers. And losers weepers start crying, O'Hara. Uncle Martin is not going to like this. I thought there was something more cheerful about your apartment today. Your uncle isn't here. Where is he? And I hope it's permanent. Well, let's just say... He's wrapped up in something right now. <laughs> well, when he gets back, do tell him I didn't miss him. This is his first of three appearances in Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His next is The Diamond Necklace, episode 20 of season four. And Alan Hewitt died in 1986 at the age of 71. Roxanne Arlen plays Donna Dew. She was born Roxanne Grevenin in Detroit. Her father was an attorney, and her mother was a schoolteacher. Now, I've run into some conflicting information in looking up Roxanne Arlen. On the website GlamourGirlsOfTheSilverScreen.com, it is reported that in 1947, she married Milton Richard Gilman at the age of 16 and did not divorce him until 1957. But IMDb says that she was married for two years in 1947 and 1948, to actor Red Buttons. This is confirmed in Wikipedia's Red Buttons entry. But if this is true, then she married Red Buttons at the age of 16. And as far as I can tell, she didn't go out to Hollywood until 1953, when she was 22. Her IMDb bio says, A former Miss Detroit and Wampus Baby Star of 1956. Howdy, Roxanne Arlen popped up on 1950s and 60s screens as sexy second leads in B-movies and TV episodes. She was tagged the Wiggle for a trademark walk she claimed to have developed at grade school and curiously found herself unable to get rid of. That Wiggle certainly got her noticed during her first auditions in Hollywood in 1953. Inevitably, most of her early roles were bit parts. She made a breakthrough of sorts on the stage as the star of the comedy Who Was That Lady I Saw You With. Alas, for the remainder of her screen career, Roxanne remained firmly typecast as dumb blondes with easy ways and names like Flo, Dixie, or Bootsy. And here are some details from GlamourGirlsOfTheSilverScreen.com. In 1955, she was named Queen of the California Trailer Park Association. In 1956... She was a candidate in columnist Earl Wilson's Prettiest Girl in America contest. In 1957, she was photographed posing outside Los Angeles Superior Court after winning a divorce from Milton Gilman. She testified that he didn't like my wiggle because it attracted too much attention. He kept telling me I was going to be accosted just because of my wiggle, but I've had this wiggle ever since grade school. At times, it has been very embarrassing, but I can't think of any way to get rid of it. But she confirmed, I got a modeling job in a department store back in my hometown of Detroit, and they fired me the next day because they said I took the customer's attention away from the clothes. 
1958, columnist Earl Wilson reported that she claimed a Philadelphia playboy was using voodoo to break up her and an oil man. He had told her he'd made a doll image of her boyfriend and stuck pins in its eyes and chest. Wilson wrote, her bow has had chest pains, 104-degree temperature, two teeth pulled, and murderous headaches. Also in 1958, she was invited to a New York Yankees game by star shortstop Tony Kubek. He carefully explained to her, you understand, Roxanne, during the game, I won't be able to sit with you. However, she discovered a couple of months later that the man who's been phoning her isn't Tony Kubek, but an imposter, and she asked for police protection. Now, amidst all of this, she appeared in various films and TV programs, including the suspense episode, The Return Journey, two Perry Mason episodes, and in perhaps her most recognized role as the stripper Electra in the film version of the musical Gypsy. IMDb says she retired from the screen in 1967. Her last three roles were in the television series Bewitched, That Girl, and Rango. And they add that she was last glimpsed recreating her screen role of Electra for a Miami stage production of Gypsy in May of 1970. They also say that Roxanne and her third husband, William Schaefer, moved to London shortly after they married, and that as Roxanne Schaefer, she later became a playwright. But I haven't been able to confirm that. This is her first of two appearances on Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Her next and last is in I Killed the Count, Part 2, Episode 26 of Season 2. And Roxanne Arlen died in 1989. According to IMDb, she was 57 years old. But according to GlamourGirlsOfTheSilverScreen.com, she was 58. And so we move on to the evening. The men are in tuxedos, and even Irene now has a string of pearls around her neck. Howard and Donna are dancing. Cecilia and the Colonel are still playing cards. Irene sits between Cecilia and Randy, when we first enter their conversation, we get a shot of Irene with Cecilia. But when Irene turns to speak to Randy, the camera slides over just to show those two, cutting a little bit later to Cecilia and the Colonel. So once again, we establish our pairing of Irene and Randy. Isn't Miss Jew beautiful tonight? My dear, the complete female population of Palm Beach has put on the war paint tonight. They're all waiting for Prince Baron to appear. And I can hardly wait to see which one will be the lucky winner. I hope it isn't Miss Jew. Howard is having such a pleasant time with her. Darling, really. The way you talk, I'd swear you were his mother, not his wife. I just can't convince Cecilia that Howard and I are very happy together. Most married men develop hobbies. Some play golf. Others collect stamps. Howard collects beautiful women. How original of him. I admit that during the first years of our marriage, I used to get upset. When I realized his flirtations were harmless, I got over it. The dance ends, 
and Howard and Donna return to the table. But then Prince Baron enters. Donna's reaction is... And another woman immediately approaches Baron, mispronouncing his name. There's a lot of mispronouncing of his name in this episode. And he very wittily dismisses her. Prince Baron, I'm so glad to see you. Remember we danced in Acapulco. Most once again in Acapulco. Excuse me, I see a friend. The prince is wearing a white tuxedo, making him stand out from the crowd. Although Howard wears a tan jacket perhaps separating the two of them off as rivals for Irene's affection. Prince Baron of India is played by our other lead, French actor Jacques Bergerac. Now, I've mentioned previously that in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, there was all sorts of what we would consider today inappropriate casting. We've talked before about white actor Ralph Moody playing any number of Native American chiefs and of Michael Ansara of Lebanese descent playing Cochise in the TV series Broken Arrow. Even here, in this very episode, we again have Californian Ralph Clanton playing another one of his high-toned Englishmen, as he did in The Gentleman from America. So, a Frenchman playing an Indian prince? Well, what's the difference? But what makes this one particularly egregious is that they have darkened Jacques Bergerac's skin for the role. It's not blackface, it's more like a deep suntan. But it flirts with blackface. If you're offended and want to turn off this episode, I don't blame you. It is offensive to our current sensibilities, as well as undoubtedly to many people back then. But I'm going to chalk it up to the times and keep going. Not forgive it, but tolerate it. The friend that Prince Baron sees is Randy, and he goes over and joins them at their table. Randy introduces him to everyone. They all say something back to the prince, except Irene. And yet it is Irene on whom the prince focuses. After engaging in a little small talk about his race car and the English mechanics he's brought with him, he turns to Irene and out of the blue says, I have this dance, Mrs. Cole. You want to dance with me? If you will do me the honor. But I haven't danced for years. I'm a very poor dancer, Your Highness. This is just a rumba, madame, not a contest. If you don't mind, Mr. Cole. Of course not. As they dance and talk, the prince tries to find some activity which interests Irene so that he can join her. But she assures him that she's a very simple person. I'm afraid my activities are very limited and ordinary. I look after my husband and our home in New York. I cook, I knit, I read. But uh, you do eat and walk and talk. <laughs> well, yes. Very well, we lunch tomorrow. And after lunch, we'll have a walk. And while we walk, we'll talk. All right. As this conversation goes on, the dance floor is full. There's all sorts of couples dancing around them. And I see Don Ames back there. We first saw Don as one of the guests at Renee Marlowe's party in episode 30, Never Again. Then we saw him in the congregation in episode 33, The Belfry. According to IMDb, He has four total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, only they missed him in the Belfry, so we'll keep an eye out for him. His next, according to them, is Mail Order Prophet, episode two of season three. Okay, now that we've mentioned Don, it seems like a good time to note that there are a lot of extras in this episode. People either on the dance floor or sitting at all the other tables. I have a list of actors from IMDb, the Hitchcock Zone, and the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion. 
all of whom are apparently amongst this cast. Some of them I can spot, some of them I can't. Very few of them actually have roles that make them stand out, and trying to sort them out can get sort of dizzying, since a lot of these people worked in the same films with the same roles, such as audience member, nightclub patron, and so on. But I'm going to go through the names that I have and do the best that I can do, beginning with an actor that I do recognize, Bess Flowers. Bess was born in Sherman, Texas in 1898. She was quoted as saying, My father was very strict, and when I had a date, my papa came in and just bawled the boy out, and I was furious with my father. My mama used to keep extra money in the sugar bowl, and I thought to myself, well, I'm going to take that money, and I'm going to New York, because I wanted to be an actress. As I went to the station, I saw a great big sign with oranges growing, which said, California. And I said, what the devil? I'll go to California and get in pictures. And so I did. I got a job the first day I went on an interview. Wikipedia says she appeared in more than 350 feature films and numerous comedy shorts. IMDb says she has 958 credits. Also, there's probably some missing. For example, the Hitchcock wiki lists The Man Who Knew Too Much, but IMDb does not. In any event, Bess appeared in so many films and shorts and TV episodes that she became known as the Queen of the Hollywood Extras. And in fact, she helped to found the Screen Extras Guild where she served as one of its vice presidents and recording secretaries. The Screen Extras Guild merged with the Screen Actors Guild in 1992. Bess was married twice. Her first husband was Cullen Tate, who was Cecil B. DeMille's assistant director. Her second was William S. Holman, a studio manager at Columbia. Here's what Joe McElhaney says of her in censusofcinema.com. She has appeared in more great films than any actor, male or female, in all of American cinema, in a career that encompassed everything from Chaplin's A Woman of Paris, 1923, to Hitchcock's Vertigo, 1958, from silent cinema to sound, from the heyday of the traditional Hollywood studio system to its declining years. She did melodrama, musicals, romantic comedies, westerns, and horror films. She was kissed by Clark Gable, insulted by Ginger Rogers, and more than once had to endure physical assaults by the Three Stooges. In her entry in the film encyclopedia, she is described by Ephraim Katz as the Queen of the Hollywood Extras, a title that identifies her as a member of the faceless many and the face that stood out from the crowd. And stand out from the crowd she often quite literally did. At almost five foot nine, she can be spotted in any crowd scene, elegantly towering above all of the women and some of the men. She is, in fact, the only extra who receives an entry in Cats, a testament to her singularity and her struggle against anonymity within the Hollywood machinery. You have all seen her many times, even if you have no idea who it is I'm referring to or cannot immediately attach a face to the name. Best Flowers. Now, in this career, she appeared in five winners of the Academy Awards Best Picture and 20 others which were nominated. The nominees were One Hour With You, Anthony Adverse, Dodsworth, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, The Awful Truth, 100 Men and a Girl, In Old Chicago, Love Affair, Ninochka, Heaven Can Wait, Watch on the Rhine, Double Indemnity, Mildred Pierce, The Razor's Edge, Father of the Bride, A Place in the Sun, The Robe, Giant, Witness for the Prosecution, and Judgment at Nuremberg. And the five winners were It Happened One Night, You Can't Take It With You, All About Eve, The Greatest Show on Earth, and Around the World in 80 Days. 
Now, most of the time, as an extra, Bess had no lines. But occasionally, she got to deliver one, such as at the end of All About Eve, when she's the one who comes up and tells Ann Baxter, I'm so happy for you, Eve. Thank you so much. Now, I've already mentioned that she's in the 1956 version of The Man Who Knew Too Much as one of the attendees at the Royal Albert Hall and in Vertigo as one of the diners at Ernie's. But she's also in Mr. and Mrs. Smith as a nightclub patron, Notorious as a party guest, Dial M for Murder as a woman departing the ship at the very beginning of the film, Rear Window as the songwriter's party guest with the poodle, To Catch a Thief as a woman at the costume ball, and North by Northwest as a hotel lounge patron. And IMDb lists her as a ball guest in Suspicion, though the Hitchcock Zone does not list that film. On television, she's in 77 Sunset Strip, Dennis the Menace, The Lucy Show, and four episodes of Thriller. Here, she's one of the guests at a table behind our central actors, and this is her first of three Alfred Hitchcock Presents and one Alfred Hitchcock Hour episodes. Her next is The Equalizer, episode 19 of season three. Bess Flowers last appeared on the screen in 1964 in Good Neighbor Sam, and she died in 1984 at the age of 85. Let's run through the rest of the extras that I have listed, wherever they may be. Harry Denny was born in 1895 in Norwich, Connecticut. He wrote the music and lyrics and appeared in the Broadway play Footlights in 1927. You can see him as one of the judges at the inauguration in the Dobie Gillis episode Smoke-Filled Room, and, like Bess Flowers, as one of the diners at Ernie's in Vertigo. This is his only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance, and Harry Denny died in 1979 at the age of 83. Joe Gilbert was born in Tennessee and has 170 IMDb credits, spanning from 1935 with Alice Adams to 1957 with Witness for the Prosecution. He's also in Alfred Hitchcock's Mr. and Mrs. Smith as a nightclub patron. This is his first of two Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearances. His next is in Momentum, episode number 39. And Joe Gilbert died in 1959 at the age of 56. We've seen Herschel Graham before. This is his third of four Alfred Hitchcock Presents and two Alfred Hitchcock Hour appearances after Never Again and The Gentleman from America. His next is A Dip in the Pool, episode 35 of season three. And we've also seen Sam Harris before. This is his second of three Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearances after The Gentleman from America. And his next, like Best Flowers, is The Equalizer, episode 19 of season three. Robert Locke Lorraine was born in 1902. He has 133 credits from 1936 in the film College Holiday to 1968 in Funny Girl. He's in the Batman Season 2 episode, The Black Widow Strikes Again, as a bank customer. He's in the Twilight Zone episode, The Trouble with Templeton, as a crowd member. He did the stunts in Rainbow Over Texas in 1946 and served as a stunt double in one episode of Perry Mason, The Case of the Clumsy Clown. And he's in Alfred Hitchcock's Torn Curtain as an airplane passenger. This is his only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance, and Robert Locke Lorraine died in 1989 at the age of 86. Paul Power was born Luther Raymond Vestergaard in 1902 in Chicago. 
He moved to Los Angeles to attend USC, working at the same time as an assistant deputy probation officer to pay his way through college. He then went on to Harvard to study law, but ran out of money after two years and left the university. He then returned to Los Angeles in 1926, getting roles in two reelers, silent comedies. IMDb says his largest role was in the Christian movie Oil Town, USA, where he worked with his friend Billy Graham. And in fact, he was also a lay minister serving as assistant pastor and interim pastor for St. Matthew's Lutheran Church and occasionally conducted services at the movie studios and funeral services for the motion pictures home in Calabasas, California. You can find him in the Perry Mason episode, The Case of the Jealous Journalist, along with Roxanne Arlen. He is one of the judges at the inauguration in the Dobie Gillis episode, The Smoke-Filled Room, along with Harry Denny. He's in the thriller episode, The Prediction, and he must have been very good at standing still because he's in the Twilight Zone episode, Elegy, as a frozen-in-place farmer, and in the episode, A Kind of a Stopwatch, as a banker who gets stopped in time. He may be most recognizable as one of the Organian elders in the Star Trek episode, Errand of Mercy. You'll find him here reading the newspaper with the news about Prince Baran, which we'll get to. And you'll also find him as a nightclub patron in Hitchcock's Mr. and Mrs. Smith, as a casino patron in Hitchcock's To Catch a Thief, as a racetrack patron in Hitchcock's Marnie, and as a reporter in Hitchcock's Torn Curtain. This is his only episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and Paul Power died in 1968 at the age of 65. Florence Wicks was born in 1883 in Hertfordshire in England. She made her film debut in 1924 in Secrets, starring Betty Compson and Noah Beery. IMDb says, while some sources indicate that she appeared in over 100 films, the American Film Institute database only has her listed in 48. But a few of those were Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Mrs. Miniver, and The Farmer's Daughter. This is her only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance, and Florence Wicks died in 1956, about six months after this episode aired, at the age of 73. Those are our main extras, but there are two other people that I want to mention. First, there's the porter, who is played by Charles Cirillo. He played a lot of waiters, reporters, and bellhops over the years, but he also was a significant figure in vaudeville. This is from his obituary in the Springfield, Massachusetts Union News. Born in Springfield, Massachusetts, he danced for pennies in the South End and made his vaudeville debut in an amateur talent contest in 1926, dancing the Charleston and tap dancing in wooden clogs. Shortly afterward, he and three brothers, Tony, Andy, and Mickey, pooled their talents and became the four Cirillo brothers. They sang and danced and did a comedy act that toured the United States on the Orpheum circuit, often playing on the same bill as Eddie Foy, Bill Bojangles Robinson, Bob Hope, Milton Berle, and Burns and Allen. As the heyday of vaudeville ebbed, Cirillo relocated to Hollywood, where he accumulated acting credits including roles in The Pale Face, Sorrowful Jones, The Wild One, Guys and Dolls, The Geisha Boy, The Great Escape, The Unsinkable Molly Brown, and The Sting. He appeared in television episodes of I Love Lucy, Mission Impossible, Murder, She Wrote, Mary Tyler Moore, Get Smart, and The Man from Uncle. He also served as Charles Bronson's stand-in for a number of years and appeared in bits in many of Bronson's films. His Hitchcock connection, like Paul Power, he played a reporter in Torn Curtain. We'll see him one more time in The Star Juror, episode 24, 
of season one of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. And Charles Cirillo died in 1999 at the age of 91. The other performer I'd like to mention, who may or may not be in there, is Vicki Dugan. Now, the only place that I've seen her mentioned as being in this episode is in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion by Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom. I haven't been able to find her, so I wrote Patrick and asked him about it. He said, over 20 years since I wrote the book, but about Vicky, I believe it was Martin Grahams that picked her out. I think she might be the girl walking behind the table about four minutes into the episode. Well, I've looked at that scene four minutes in, which is about when Howard and Donna show up, and there are two women that walk behind, each escorted by a man, and I can't tell if one of these women is Vicky, but let's assume that one of them is. Vicki Dugan was born Edith Tooker in New York. As kitsch-slapped.com puts it, legend says that in 1946, at the age of 16, she becomes both a Miss Rheingold finalist, but is disqualified for being underage, and the wife of a William Simons, the owner of a local photo studio. Two years later, she won the New York Skate Queen competition. As Billboard put it, the purpose of the event is to select an ideal girl roller skater and glorify her for a year. Judging will be based on charm, beauty, and personality, with no points whatsoever for skating skill. Contestants must only appear on skates. Professional skater models and actresses are banned. Winning this contest is Vicky's entree into the modeling world. For a time, she has billed as New York model and prize-winning skater, or the 1948 beauty queen of figure skating. That one, again, according to kitsch-slapped.com, appears to be the last mention of Vicki Dugan the skater. In 1950, her daughter Debbie is born, and soon after that, her husband walks out on her. She gets a divorce in 1952. In 1953... Life magazine puts her on the cover for an article entitled Careers Aplenty, Vicki Dugan Models, Acts, Designs, Mothers. During the 50s and 60s, she is a successful model with occasional small roles in films and dating prominent actors like Frank Sinatra and Glenn Ford. But it's in 1956 that, according to Wikipedia, Publicity man Milton Weiss had the idea of promoting Vicky using a backless dress to garner publicity. The idea was to gain a contrast with the fashion from models and actresses with large bosoms, such as Jane Mansfield. And these pictures of Vicky in low-plunging backlines sent her rocketing to fame. This is the caption for a picture of Vicky in a backless dress from the Hollywood Today column by Erskine Johnson. Vicki Dugan's plunging backline has set Hollywood buzzing, something her reverse on the plunging neckline isn't in good taste. Vicki says she admits it is daring, but reveals no more than the average bathing suit. So soon known as the back, Vicki spawned all sorts of publicity and all sorts of puns in newspaper headlines, such as Vicki backs in and it's what's up back that counts. But Vicki herself said... The backless dress got me known, but it never got me one job. In fact, I lost several good jobs because of it. You can't cash those fan magazine photos at the supermarket. So Vicky had to make do with occasional small parts, often in small films, such as the waitress in the Rebel set, here made fun of by Mystery Science Theater 3000. What about the tickets? 
You'll get them at 8.30. But it is 8.30. Somewhere in the world. It is 8.10. Precisely. Hmm? Karen. I'll have the chicken wings. Yes, John? Where'd you get that pretty watch? Oh, dear Sydney sold it to me, and at a great personal loss. I'll bet. Ow! Well, it's not working. Huh? My wrist? Oh, it still works, see? Come in. No wonder it's been 810 for three days. Never trust that city again, that... that... H-E-A-L. And tributes, such as this song by the Limelighters. Vicky, turn your back on me. Come on, darling, just for me. Cause there is something so appealing that your eyes are not revealing. Ha-ha, Miss Dugan, you're for me. Ha-ha, ha-ha, ha-ha. Other girls who approach me are beautiful, gorgeous, and gay. But you're so gosh darn more inviting. Going the other way. Kitch-slapped.com wraps up their tribute by saying that, along with inspiring pop art, Vicky and her sexy back would be the inspiration for Jessica Rabbit. A New York Times article, published April 21st of this year, entitled What Happened to Vicky Dugan, mentions that there is a resurgence of interest in her because her pictures have become popular on the Internet. The writer of the article, Isabel Sloan, contacted Vicky, who is, at the time of this recording, 92 years old. The article says that Ms. Dugan does not own a computer or smartphone and has not left her apartment since the beginning of the pandemic, not even to go get the mail. I'd rather die here inside this apartment than go outside and die of the virus, Ms. Dugan said. She has, however, been vaccinated. She didn't realize that her pictures were, as the article states, plastered all over the internet and that people seem to enjoy them as much today as they did back then. She did acknowledge that she often receives fan mail and said, I'm amazed at these people who write to me. They've seen almost everything I've done. Today, she regrets relinquishing her high-powered modeling career to become an actress. I wish I knew not to give it up, Miss Dugan said. In the 70s, she eventually dropped the name Vicki Dugan and began going by Edith Tooker again. She attended cosmetology school and got degrees in theater arts and telecommunications, but primarily subsisted on a combination of alimony, unemployment, and income from renting out the extra bedroom in her apartment. Even at the height of her fame, Ms. Dugan always felt at odds with the racy reputation she had acquired. It is not symbolic of who I am, she said of the back. It wasn't really me. I was playing a part. I didn't even think there was anything even sexy about showing it back. It just didn't occur to me. And if Vicky is in this episode, this is her only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance. Now, where were we? Oh, yes. It's a number of days later, and the prince has been inundating Irene with flowers. Cecilia and the colonel can't understand it. Five dozen red roses every morning. Irene's sweetness looked like a funeral parlor. No, the prince is carrying this joke too far. Mm, they stopped being a joke days ago. Oh? Oh, really? Uh, what's the... what's the latest explanation? We're back at the mother complex. Oh, ridiculous. No man dances every dance with his mother night after night. 
Well, it certainly is the most bewildering romance. Mm. A young, rich, handsome prince captivated by a not-so-young and extremely ordinary housewife. Why, I ask you, why? Perhaps he's attracted to oh, her. poppycock. Kyrene's a dear, but she couldn't attract a mosquito. But it's more than just the flowers. The prince hangs out with Irene all the time now, sitting around in his robe and bathing suit while she does her knitting. Howard professes not to be worried about it. He thinks that the prince is looking for a quiet relationship, different from all the affairs he's had in the past. And Irene tends to agree with him. But the prince objects to this interpretation. Why should it unsettle you to know that the man is attracted to you? Because I'm not blind. There are too many mirrors around this place. I have no idea what you see when you look into a mirror. I can only tell you what I see when I look at you. You were attractive to me from the very first moment. Since then, I have had a chance to know you. Now, every time I look at you, I see the most wonderful woman I have ever met. Jesus. Baron, have a heart. I do. A heart full of love and desire. I love you, Irene. No, Baron, stop it. Love me. I will make you the happiest woman in the world. Just think about it. Cecilia and the Colonel aren't the only people observing this situation. After Baron leaves, Randy walks up to Irene. I'd hoped you'd be honest with me, Mr. Burnside. Look at me. I'm ordinary looking. I'm over 30. I'm not amusing. I'm just not the type of prince would fall in love with. Let me ask you this. Do you get any pleasure out of being with him? That's the disturbing part. I do. You see, my husband doesn't have much time to spend with me. Well, then. If I were you, I should simply enjoy the prince's company and let the devil take the hindmost. We dissolve to the evening, where we learn that the race is tomorrow and that in his racing car trials, the prince has hit 136 miles per hour. Randy, Cecilia, and the colonel are at their table, no playing cards this time, and Howard and Donna walk up and join them. But the prince and Irene are not there. They are off on their own having a glass of champagne. The music in the background is the same tune we heard last time on the radio of Dana Edwards' car in episode 34, The Hidden Thing. Here it plays behind the prince again professing his love for Irene and then forcing a kiss on her. I know you love me too, but you are just too decent to admit it. Your husband doesn't love you. He doesn't need you. You will divorce him and marry me. Sorry, I've told you all along I'm in love with Howard and I'll never divorce him. Listen, Irene, if you don't marry me, I'll kill myself. Stop it. You don't know what you're saying. You have no right to do this to me. Very well. May I kiss you goodbye? No, Your Highness. If you misunderstood my feelings, I'm very sorry. But I think it's best if we never see each other again. We won't. I know we won't. And just like last time, Randy steps in. 
He tells the prince that Howard and Donna have been looking for him to play poker. And the prince leaves, and Irene pours her heart out to Randy. He says if I don't leave Howard and marry him, he'll kill himself. Oh, he's getting to be a colossal bore. I told him I never want to see him again. And you were absolutely right. Suppose he really meant it. What if he really kills himself? I'd, I'd never forgive myself. I'd never get over it. Irene, remember what you told me yourself. You're not the type a prince falls madly in love with. You're just a new kind of challenge for him. And if he'd won, you couldn't have hoped to have kept him for very long. Except that after we fade out of that scene, we fade in to a close-up of the Palm Beach Journal, price seven cents, with a big headline that says, Prince Baron dies. And the subheadline reading, Oriental Playboy, victim of mysterious car crash. The paper is held by Cecilia, and she and the colonel are at their table, along with Donna, and the woman who was rebuffed by Prince Baron when he first arrived. They are baffled by the prince's death. Why would he want to drive a racing car on the highway in the middle of the night? He'd been drinking. He just wanted to cause a sensation. It was suicide. Because of Irene? That's ridiculous. He left her $28,000 worth of roses. And they watch as Howard and Irene enter. They are checking out. And the maitre d' tells them they can sneak out the back way to avoid the press. Irene is looking particularly stricken. And she makes eye contact with Randy, who also happens to be at that table, but was not in the shot, possibly because he now feels a distance from these gossipers and speculators, seeing as he now knows the truth, or so he thinks. Look at that performance. The Camille of Palm Beach. She just wants everyone to think he killed himself because of her. I hate to disillusion you ladies, but that's exactly what happened. The prince told her last night that if she didn't leave her husband and marry him, he would kill himself. You can't beat that for an exit line. So Randy gets up and walks away, leaving the other four, none of whom we will see again in this episode. So before they go, let's look at the fourth member, the one who said, She just wants everyone to think he killed himself because of her. She was played by Joan Dixon. And Joan's career began at RKO Pictures, where she had a contract with Howard Hughes, who tried to make her into a star in the same way he made Jane Russell into a star, but he didn't succeed. In 1952, Joan eloped with camera manufacturer Ted Briskin, and their marriage lasted three weeks. She later married writer William Driscoll and divorced him in 1959. Her IMDb credits only run from 1950 to 1958, and her films mostly consist of westerns with cowboy actor Tim Holt and hard-boiled film noir, with possibly her best-known role being Diane Morley in Roadblock. Well, hello. Hello. Thought I'd lost you. I didn't know you were trying to. Tell me, what was with that double O treatment you were giving me back in the waiting room? What treatment? Big smile and the ice. Your name, please? Joseph Peters. Mrs. Joseph Peters. Hey, what's with this Mrs. Peters? No, you can't get away with it. What's your name? 
Diane Morley. Real or phony? What are you, a cop? Yeah, sort of. I'm an insurance detective. Maybe I picked on the wrong guy. Yeah, maybe you did. Fasten your seatbelts, please. Now look, sister. I'm not your sister. I'm your wife. Till we get to Los Angeles. Fasten your seatbelt. In 1960, Joan performed as a vocalist at Dean Martin's nightclub in Los Angeles, Dino's Lodge. And that's all that I can find out about her, except that she died in 1992 at the age of 61. This is Joan's only episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Hey, remember when Randy was our narrator? Well, here he is again. I spent the next three months in Jamaica working. On my way to see my publisher, I stopped off at the scene of the crime. Hello, Henri. Mr. Burnside, you're in Palm Beach in May. I'm just on my way to New York. I have finished my book on Prince Boran, and let me tell you that as a writer, I couldn't have hoped for a more startling ending. Henri is the maitre d', and seeing as he's about to give us some startling news, maybe it's time we finally took a look at him. He was played by Rudolf Anders, born in Germany as Rudolf Ament. He began acting in German films as Rudolf Ament, and he continued to use his real name after he moved to Hollywood. But in 1938, with trouble brewing in Germany, he changed his name to Robert O. Davis, and he used that name throughout World War II, during which he played Nazi spies and officers. Wikipedia says his German-accented English confined him largely to accent roles, and during World War II to villain parts, although not leading roles as his small build, wide eyes, soft voice, and naturally quiet demeanor did not allow him to appear overly menacing. After the war, he changed his name again, this time to Rudolf Anders. And he not only played German officers in the 1950s, but also diplomats, scientists, and doctors. IMDb says, though, that his very last acting appearance was true to form as a Nazi officer on a TV episode of Garrison's Guerrillas in 1968. He then retired. IMDb has him credited in 120 different programs. He's in such films as The Great Dictator, To Be or Not to Be, Watch on the Rhine, and The Magnificent Obsession. He's in episodes of The Adventures of Superman, three episodes of One Step Beyond, and he's Major Hartman in the Man from Uncle episode, The Gurneyus Affair. Well, it's ridiculous. The very thought of it is absolutely ridiculous. We have reason to believe otherwise, Major. But yes, escape from here? Mr. Solo, I've been the commandant in this prison for 25 years. I have developed a security system that should be the envy of Uncle itself. What's more? Major, we're not here to criticize you. Then don't. Rudolf Anders died in 1987 at the age of 91. And since this is his only appearance in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and he is the bearer of some important information, let's let him bring it. Do you really believe that he killed himself because he was in love with Mrs. Cole? Of course I do. I know he was. He wasn't in love. He was bankrupt. His yacht, his planes, his chateaus, they were all over-mortgaged. His bill with us is still unpaid. I don't believe it. He couldn't have been broke. I saw him win more than $28,000 the night he killed himself. What's $28,000 for a man who owes millions? He was a true gambler. 
and Mrs. Irene Cole and her bottle cap empire were his last chance. You mean he was after her money? Yes. And it's a pity he didn't succeed. He was such a charming gentleman. So when Irene turned him down, he took the easy way out? No, he didn't take it. It was provided for him by his mechanic, who had the brakes of his racing car disconnected, never dreaming that he would want to drive it in the middle of the night. Then it was a bona fide accident. Yes. But of course, these facts were withheld from the press at the request of the prince's family. They were anxious to protect the royal reputation. I know I can count on your discretion, Mr. Burnside. Don't worry, I'm not going to change my book and I won't tell a soul. Except one, Mrs. Cole, she's entitled to know. She must be told she had nothing to do with the prince's death. She was so upset because she felt she was to blame. I'll make a point of going to see her in New York. I'm not sure why leaving the impression that the prince committed suicide over the love of a woman protects the family name better than that he accidentally died because his race car had no brakes. But I'm not going to quibble about it. Randy, fulfilling his promise, visits the Coles in New York in our very next scene. And while he finds a framed portrait of Prince Baron sitting on the piano next to a vase filled with roses, he also finds that things are very different than he expected. I've succeeded in getting her interested in charity work and civic organizations. Thank you. Oh, by the way, please don't mention Baron to her. You understand. Of course. Tell me, have you seen Miss Dew lately? No. I don't have time for those things anymore. Between my business and looking after Irene, I have my hands full. You know, I never realized how much Irene really needs me. How much she depends on me. Randy. Irene's entrance is another surprise to Randy. She's wearing makeup, an expensive dress, jewelry, and she seems much more forthright and assertive. As Howard goes to fetch Irene's mink coat, Randy gets evidence of her new confidence when she answers a phone call and agrees to finance a play, but insists that the director take a look at a new young actor that she thinks has potential. When she hangs up, she returns to Randy. Did you finish your book about Prince Bora? Yes. I'm glad you wrote it. He was a strange, passionate man, lonely, misunderstood, a great romanticist. He should have lived in another century. Here you are, sweetheart. Oh, thank you, darling. You're coming with us, of course. Oh, no, I've got another engagement. But you said you wanted to tell me something very important. Oh, did I? I forget what it was. It can't have been very important. We'll give you a lift. And back to Randy as narrator. There they were, a happy couple, and all because they believed that Prince Boran had killed himself for love of her. He had given them a precious legacy. Who was I to rob them of it? And so we begin and end with Randy. He has been our eyes into this world, and now he breaks the fourth wall and looks directly into our eyes as he asks us, Would you have... Now, the story, and at least part of the teleplay, was written by Gina Kaus. 
Gina was a mostly forgotten writer who in recent years has received renewed interest. This is from a blog by Jan Christopher Horak, former director of the UCLA Film and Television Archive at cinema.ucla.edu. Gina Kaus was born Regina Viner in Vienna, the daughter of a Jewish banker. She finished high school and then married a musician at 20, Joseph Zerner, who fell on the battlefield in 1915 in World War I, while Kaus continued to live with her in-laws. She next met the prominent Viennese Jewish banker Joseph Krantz, becoming both his lover and adopted daughter, while joining poet and Franz Kafka confidant Franz Blee's writer circle and becoming his lover. In 1917, her first play, the comedy Thieves in the House, premiered at Vienna's prestigious Berg Theater. But her serious literary career began in 1921, when her novella, The Rise, won the coveted Theodore Fontaine Prize. In the meantime, she had dropped her double name, Zerner Kraus, to marry Otto Kaus, with whom she had two sons, before divorcing him. The mid-1920s saw her relocating to Berlin, writing for various Vienna and Berlin-based newspapers, and having an affair with Franz Xaver Graf Schafgatz, known as the Red Duke, because he joined the Communist Party, even though he was royal. By the end of the 1920s, Gina Kaus had arrived. Her play Tony, about a German flapper, was a huge success, playing all over Central Europe. Her first novel, The Lovers, became an international bestseller. It was a roman à clay about two couples who unwittingly switched partners, fictionalizing Kaus's initially unhappy relationship with lawyer Eduard Frischauer and his wife Ella, who had been one of her best friends. Frischauer would in fact become her longtime companion, following her to Paris and Hollywood. Always a world champion bridge player and no longer being able to practice law, Frischauer became a compulsive gambler whose debts Kaus inevitably had to pay. Indeed, evidence suggests that Kaus not only supported herself and her two sons, but also Frischauer, his wife, and their daughter during much of their exile. As a Jewish feminist and sexually liberated writer, it's not surprising that she would become a target for the Nazis once they came to power. Her 1932 novel, The Crossing, was burned in May 1933 by the Nazis. At the same time, it was adapted for a film at Paramount. Kaus returned to Vienna and made her first trip to New York, when her novel Catherine the Great became a bestseller in America. After the so-called Anschluss, which was the annexation of Austria by Nazi Germany, Kaus fled with her two sons to Paris via Zurich on an Italian passport, where the literary agent George Martin introduced her to Austrian émigré film producer Arnold Pressburger. In her autobiography, And What a Life, Kaus notes that she had a terrible time casting the checks Pressburger gave her because a single woman was not legally able to open a bank account without a husband, and she couldn't prove that she had been divorced for over a decade. With financial help from George Martin, Kaus obtained a visitor's visa to America for herself and her children and arrived in Hollywood in November 1939. Martin sold several of her stories so that her name appeared on four films in 1942, including an anti-Nazi film written with Jay Dratler. After that, her productivity dropped a bit, but Kaus still regularly received film credits for stories or adaptations of her growing number of novels. Her most important later credit is a West German production of her novel The Devil Next Door, which Rolf Hansen directs as Devil in Silk in 1956. She traveled back to Berlin and Vienna in the early 1950s for visits, but decided to stay in Los Angeles.
at the University of Iowa's Institutional Repository at ir.uiowa.edu. There is a dissertation abstract by Regina Range, Positioning Gina Kaus, a transnational career from Vienna novelist and playwright to Hollywood scriptwriter. And the abstract says in part, the dissertation argues that Kaus's specific female and little visible exile experience was shaped and accompanied by a significant social, cultural, political, linguistic, and geographical change. It reconstructs and consciously reinserts Kaus's transatlantic accomplishments into the larger exile history. My dissertation offers close reading of Gina Kaus's second play, Tony, and positions her piece with the larger landscape of the Weimar Republic and Vienna during the 1920s. The analysis incorporates a feminist reading, which focuses on the performance of gender and the representation of femininity and illustrates the destabilization of gender and sexual identities during the Weimar period. My particular focus on the representation of femininity and female agency sheds light on how the émigré Kaus, who had been known as an ardent feminist in Europe, successfully managed to subvert ideas of heteronormative gender and power discourses even within the restrictive limits of the Hollywood apparatus. I also shed light on her ability to adapt to the United States and her decision to remain and become a citizen. Her perception of exile as an opportunity rather than as a limitation is an important new aspect in the existing exile research. It might be too simple to take the two concepts of feminism and exile and say that this story deals with a woman who is exiled from her own strata, choosing to don the gender role of a traditional, stereotypical married woman, even down to knitting and food preparation, as a reaction to her husband's dabbling in infidelities, in spite of her great wealth. Although she is apparently offered a better life and a better love by the prince's attentions, she nevertheless adheres to the exile that she is in. In the face of the prince's apparent suicide, she and her husband come to believe in a power she has within, a power she never felt she had before. And as a result, their marriage becomes happier, and in many ways their gender roles are reversed. The real question, though, with the teleplay, to which I have no answer, is how much of it is Gina Kaus and how much of it is Andrew Salt. We can perhaps get a better sense of how Gina views this story by looking at her short story, the finding of which is a story in itself. Now the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion ordinarily does a first-rate job of pinpointing the short story on which the teleplay is based and saying where it was first published. But in the case of The Legacy, all that they write is from an original story idea by Gina Kaus. So does that mean that the story itself was never written? Or that perhaps, like Portrait of Jocelyn, was a previous teleplay? I went looking to try to find out. But the only references to Gina Kaus and the legacy that I could find were references to the Hitchcock episode. At some point in my digging, and I can't even remember where, I stumbled upon a reference to a book put out by Gina in 1935 called Return to Reality and Other Stories. And so I wondered if perhaps one of the other stories was the legacy. I searched in some of my usual online haunts and couldn't find a reference for it. Finally, I gave it a try on Abe Books and got a match with a bookseller in Dublin, Ireland. Unfortunately, his listing did not list the table of contents. So I wrote to him and asked, was the legacy one of the stories in the book? And he wrote back and said, yes. 
In the story, the narrator is unnamed, but appears to be a woman, and is a guest at the resort at which the lead characters are staying. The resort is in Europe, and instead of having Irene and Howard Cole from Texas, we have Frau and Herr Tilgner from Cologne. Herr Tilgner spends most of his time with a film actress, and most everyone at the hotel assumes he's having an affair with her. But as our narrator says, no one who knows the society in which we live will be surprised at this, for not adultery, but the toleration of it, is considered an insolent mockery of our conventions. Of Frau Tilgner, the narrator says, I felt no real pity for her, and I was certainly not outraged by her attitude. But she goes up and asks her, out of curiosity, how she can stand this relationship. And Frau Tilgner is a little more emotional than Irene Cole. Yes, it does hurt, she said, taking hold of my hand at once. Perhaps by this gesture she wanted quickly to establish the intimacy my question implied. Yes, it does hurt, but to suffer like this is not the worst that might happen to me. Yes, at first it was unbearable, but one gets used to everything. Our narrator disputes that, saying, Perhaps one grows accustomed to physical pain, but jealousy is a form of unhappiness which is rooted in fantasy. It is constantly nourished by the sufferer's imagination, and so one can never get used to it. I stayed with her for two hours, and during this time, I am ashamed to admit, we talked only about myself, about my plans and prospects, about my children, about the difficulties I was experiencing. When I went to my room, I had a pleasant feeling, a feeling of almost physical well-being, which I could not explain to myself for a long time. I felt refreshed. A familiar warmth had taken possession of me. Finally, I realized what had happened. This kind mother hen had begun to brood over me. And then into their lives comes not Prince Baran of India, but Comte Alban Rossi from Italy. And two days after his arrival, he devoted himself entirely to Frau Tilgner. As in the episode, the Comte professes his love for Frau Tilgner, and she turns him down, until finally he threatens to commit suicide. And that night, he does. There's no car accident. Instead, he shoots himself. The Tilgners leave the hotel, and sometime later, there was a knock at my door, and a lady came in. She was dressed in black. She was weeping. She was Rossi's sister, who had come to take his body home to Italy. She came to see me because she longed to talk to someone about the last days of her brother's life. Unfortunately for myself, I had seen more of the Tilgners than the other guests had. She was so moved that she was compelled to tell someone his secret. Rossi, a widower with two children, was a gambler who had ruined himself financially in two weeks. In the hope of recovering his losses, he had gambled away a trustee fund belonging to his orphan niece. He had lost this sum as well. Immediately before committing suicide, he had written to his sister, telling her that he must die. As he did not want his children to know the shameful reason for his suicide, he had staged a love affair with a tragic ending. A life insurance policy, which he had taken out years before with an English firm, would replace most of his gambling losses after his death. And this is how it ends. The next day I took the train, resolved to go to Frau Tilgner and to relieve her troubled conscience. Poor Rossi! How well he must have known human nature to have chosen in one short evening the only woman present who would resist his advances. I arrived towards evening. I asked for the Tilgners at the hotel, and the porter told me they had gone for a walk. Together? I could not help asking. Yes, he said in surprise. I sat down on the terrace and waited. When they returned, arm in arm, the electric lights were already lit. 
Frau Tilgner embraced me and wept. She asked me about Rossi's funeral at once. I waited to tell her the details when we were alone after dinner. Herr Tilgner, I was sure, would then go out with some other woman. After dinner, however, Herr Tilgner stayed with us until we were very sleepy. He was worried because his wife did not eat enough, and he asked me whether I thought she was pale. No, I did not think she was pale, but I thought she had changed. She was no longer a motherly hen, ready to protect her young. She was an awkward, rather ugly woman of an uncertain age, but she was a woman. Finally, Herr Tilgner left the lounge and went up to their room to fetch her a shawl. While we were alone, she said, I can't get over it, to think that he loved me so deeply. Can you understand why a man would be so fond of me? So this had altered her. She had been a loving woman. Now she was a woman who had been loved. She and her husband both felt this change in her. As far as they knew, Rossi had died of love, and his love had made her more desirable. I left without relieving Frau Tilgner's conscience. I don't know whether I was right. I had considered the matter very carefully, and the curious thought occurred to me. Had Rossi, who knew human nature so well, intended to make his inevitable death a gift to this good woman? Could I have offended against his legacy? Gina Kaus died in 1985 at the age of 91. This is her only Alfred Hitchcock Presents credit. At last, in our look at the earliest Hitchcock, we come to a film that he actually directed. Number 13, also known as Mrs. Peabody. Unfortunately, it was never finished and is now lost. Here's what Hitch said about it to Francois Truffaut. Number 13. Oh, that was a comedy. That never finished. Oh, so not really what was that, a documentary? No, there was a woman working in the studio who had worked with Chaplin. And she had an idea for a story. Two Rila. And she wrote this thing and we found some money. And uh, it wasn't very good. This was uh, also when the studio closed down. C'était également au moment où se fermait le studio. C'est ça. Ça n'est pas. Ça n'est pas sorti. Ça n'a pas été Never came out. So let's unpack a little bit of that. Hitch refers to when the studio was closing down. John Russell Taylor in Hitch: The Life and Times of Alfred Hitchcock notes. It had the misfortune to be in production at just the time famous players Lasky was winding up operations and the studio was left deserted but for a skeleton staff, including Hitchcock. Now, when Hitch says we found some money, Patrick McGilligan in Alfred Hitchcock, A Life in Darkness and Light says, The most notable thing about number 13 is that Hitchcock's Uncle John invested in the picture. When the funds ran out, the star, Claire Greet, the daughter of famed actor-manager John Greet and his wife Fanny, also pitched in money. The failure of number 13 and the loss of his uncle's investment was a somewhat chastening experience that Hitchcock took deeply to heart. In the years that followed, preparation and pre-production would become all the more crucial to his methodology. Storyboarding, sketching all the scenes in advance of filming, became standard policy. He felt keenly responsible for making films efficiently according to budget. He was proud to be a commercial director, one who would turn a reliable profit for his producers. Greet's generosity was another gesture he never forgot. 
Hitchcock had a soft spot for one-time leading ladies of the stage, whom he often called on for eccentric supporting roles. Greet would turn up in future Hitchcock films more than any other performer. She appears in The Ring, The Manx Man, Murder, The Man Who Knew Too Much, the 1934 version, Sabotage, Jamaica Inn, and the Hitchcock-produced Lord Camber's Ladies. As for that writer who worked with Chaplin, there has been some speculation over the years as to who she was. But Hélène Kersenkoff and Charles Barr in Hitchcock Lost and Found, The Forgotten Films, say, Hitchcock had identified her in talking to Peter Bogdanovich in 1972. This detail did not make it into the published version of the interviews, but in the full recording he can be heard to name her clearly as Elsie Codd. Codd had indeed worked with Chaplin. She was his British publicist in the late teens and joined him in Hollywood in 1919 before returning to England to handle publicity for famous players Lasky Britain and to write extensively for Picture Goer magazine, mainly on Chaplin. In January 1922, she wrote for Kine Weekly what was billed as being the first article in a regular series, Through a Woman's Eyes. It features famous player Lasky Britain's John S. Robertson, but no other articles follow, which is frustrating, since her own script was being filmed by Hitchcock around this time, and that experience would surely have been worth a story or two. So, now, what was the film about? Well, Patrick McGilligan says it dealt with low-income residents of a building financed by the Peabody Trust, founded by American banker-philanthropist George Peabody, to offer affordable housing to needy Londoners. And Curzonkoff and Barr point out that in a 1930 interview, Hitchcock said, Claire Greet and Ernest Thesiger, who, by the way, is best known as Dr. Pretorius in The Bride of Frankenstein, played the leading parts. The plot consisted of the dream of a char lady who, having bought a lottery ticket, optimistically dreamed of wealth. All her friends were honored guests at her mansion, a gentleman who had been particularly kind to her being permitted to wear a diadem from morning to night, and all her enemies became her servants. Curzonkoff and Barr add, Elsie Codd had been present at the shooting of Chaplin's The Kid, even appearing in it as an extra, and her story sounds as if it was influenced by the extended Heavenly Dreamland sequence toward the end of that film. And they also tell us that in that same 1930 interview, Hitchcock said, Unfortunately, as a production unit, we were so inexperienced that we made it a straight comedy instead of farce. So it was shelved. All that remains of number 13 is a few production picture stills. In Gina Kaus's story, Frau Tilgner goes from being a loving woman to a woman who has been loved. As Gina writes, she was an awkward, rather ugly woman of an uncertain age, but she was a woman. Age and looks have nothing to do with it. To be a woman is to be a woman. Still, it takes the attentions of a man to bring this about, so the story may or may not be feminist. Similarly, the Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode, with Irene's stress over Baron's attentions and with the prince's sudden death, may or may not be suspenseful, but what it is is a careful exploration of the psychology of privilege and class. Hitch plants the seed in the introduction, referring to the idle rich and the useless playboys of a decaying society. Our bridge into this world is Randy, who, as our narrator, puts us on a par with the wealthy. And because he is the narrator, and because he is a kind man, we view Randy as one of us. 
and yet his inclinations are all turned toward the rich. He only wants to write about the top of the heap, and his instincts, geared toward romance and privilege, are all wrong. He thinks Irene is Cecilia's secretary. Then he thinks she married Howard for his money. Then he thinks that Prince Bowron really loves Irene. Then he thinks the prince committed suicide to escape financial ruin. The cliches of wealth deceive him every time. But what about our other players? Well, there's Cecilia and the Colonel, whose lives seem to consist of gossiping and playing cards, and they're the sympathetic ones. The others are either schemers or role players. Howard spends all his time with Donna Dew because, as Irene puts it, he collects beautiful women, which he can get away with because he is rich. Donna is happy to oblige. She's an aspiring Hollywood actress who probably helps her career by being seen in such company, and she's not above soliciting Randy for a script. The woman who danced with the prince in Acapulco is vying for time with him again. She and Donna mock Irene's Camille-like reaction to the prince's death, a reference in this case to Greta Garbo's stricken prolonged death scene in the 1936 film, I think. They don't seem concerned about the prince's fate at all. They seem more jealous of Irene's notoriety than anything else. By the time of the prince's death, everyone seems to be reading the paper, but only Randy feels the tragedy. The rest get their gossip of the moment from it and then undoubtedly go on to other things. And as a result, they disappear from the episode. And while Irene's emotions are genuine, she is the biggest role player of all, knitting and mixing Cecilia's salads when she is possibly the wealthiest person there. And the prince himself turns out to be the worst schemer of the lot, professing love and threatening suicide just to lure a rich woman from her husband. His accidental death only accidentally providing Irene and Howard with a happy ending. And what about that happy ending? How do we feel about it? Well, on the one hand, we're happy for Irene. On the other hand, it's sort of a he loved big brother moment. Not that Irene was ever really out of the in crowd. As the heir to the bottle cap company, she was as much in it as anyone, only outwardly wearing common dresses when later she wears jewels and a mink coat. When Randy decides not to tell her about Baron, he breaks the fourth wall, turns to us, and says, Would you? Dropping it all in our laps. We are the hoi polloi here, not Randy, who hobnobs with the great and near great, and who has the incorrect instincts of a wealthy romantic. And we, the outside observers, have now been asked to enter the conversation. Would we spoil Irene and Howard's happy ending? Of course not. Who wants to spoil a happy ending? But in choosing not to, we have become complicit, hiding the truth in the same way the prince's family hid the truth to keep the illusion of royalty alive, to retain the romanticism of wealth. What would happen if Irene was told the truth? And remember, it's not just Irene who is deceived, it's everyone, because Randy is not changing the ending of his book. So no one knows that the prince romanced a woman just to get her money, that his death was not a suicide but an accident, and that all of these people are as fallible and unsure as the rest of us. No one knows except we, the viewer. But we're not going to tell anyone, are we? We're going to let this illusion of the virtues of wealth continue. They say that the non-wealthy don't begrudge the wealthy their wealth because they hope to become wealthy one day themselves. But it could be as simple as wanting to see a happy ending even if it's not our own. And all of these questions, suspenseful or not, make this a very intriguing episode. It may not be top tier, but it is certainly in the top half of season one. Now here's Hitch, out of the web, brushing off the sleeves of his jacket. 
I suppose you're wondering how I escaped. Fortunately, my captor dropped a stitch at a crucial moment. In the event you may have missed a few Freudian overtones of our story, I should like to offer a brief explanation. Irene Cole was a compulsive knitter with a Madame Lafarge complex. Howard Cole was an extrovert who suffered from a regressive libido, an Oedipus complex, schizophrenia, and an extremely low sales resistance. Prince Burden's sports car was obviously the symbol for his mother. He had always wanted to drive her mad. And the accident wasn't caused by defective brakes at all. The automobile was psychosomatic. It has since undergone analysis and is now well adjusted. I hope this makes everything clear. And now before I return, my sponsor will indulge in a bit of symbolism of his own, for which I can offer no explanation. Alfred Hitchcock presents Season 1. Gypsy. All About Eve, Change of Habit, 310 to Yuma, and The Andy Griffith Show Season 4 are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. The Hitchcock Truffaut interview, the Mystery Science Theater 3000 version of The Rebel Set, the Limelighter song Vicky Dugan, Roadblock, the My Favorite Martian episode, and the introductions to Suspense, Escape, and Tales of Tomorrow are all available online. If you would like to contact me about this podcast, please email me at sherdsmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at aadl.org. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. Next time... Episode 36, Mink, starring Ruth Hussey. I hope you enjoyed that. I know Freud would have. Join us again next week when we shall be back with another story. Good night.